Christchurch, New Malden, 10th of November 2019, 6.30 service. Katie Lofman speaking in the series, Transformed by God's Love, A Sinful Woman. Hi. Well, as Tim said, this is the second one in our series about uh, people who have their lives transformed by God, uh, or in more specifically, whose lives are transformed by an encounter that they had with Jesus. So this uh, episode that we just heard from Jesus' life is about a sinful woman who is unnamed in the passage. It doesn't tell us who she is. But what she does is a beautiful act, and in many ways it's a prophetic act as well. It's an incredible outpouring of love and of passion and probably also of sadness over her sins. That's the implication at the end of the story. Well, not the story, the account. There's another account in the Bible of Jesus having his feet washed by, in this way by a woman, and uh, it occurs actually in all four Gospels, but in the Gospel of John, it says that the woman who did it was Mary, Mary whose brother was Lazarus that was raised from the dead, and whose sister was Mary, as in Mary and Martha. Whereas this, this um, episode, the, the woman is not named at all. So was it Mary in both situations? Is this two different accounts of the same happening? Or did, this, did the same thing happen twice to Jesus? It seems rather an odd thing to have happened twice to one person during such a short period of time. Uh, but John says very, very categorically in uh, his passage, which is in John chapter 11, that it was Mary. And what this says to me is the fact that the first woman is not named in the, in the Luke's account, and yet when people talk about her, they very often describe her as a prostitute. And there's a sermon on our own church website given by uh, Carolyn where she talks about the poignancy of that, and it's a very moving sermon actually if you wanted to look at her, to listen to it on the website. But to say that a sinful woman is therefore a prostitute is a bit of a leap, actually. And all women who are sinful are not necessarily prostitutes. And the fact that she had her hair down is one of the things that people say was a bit shocking at the time. But I don't think that this traditional stereotyping is, is really what's required. And I think that it's something that's gone on through the years, that women are put into two categories. Either you're like um, Mary, in that you're very holy and you have your eyes downcast, or you're looking raptly up to heaven in a very holy way. Or you're like Eve, as in you're a temptress, you lead men astray, you, you kind of, you're looking straight ahead and being very seductive. And women are always often cast in, this, in these two like polarised stereotypes. And, and I think that that's, those archetypal figures are something that, that women kind of get shoved into two boxes. And I don't think that's particularly helpful. Because men in the Bible are allowed all sorts of complexities. I mean, look at somebody like Peter. He was in all through the Gospels, both a saint and a sinner. And yet nobody has a bad word to say about him. And uh, so I think that when, but what would Jesus say about this? Well, I think in a certain, in a way, Jesus doesn't really care because Jesus doesn't care if people are prostitute or, or not prostitutes, really, because he was often taunted 
by people saying, oh, he's friends with tax collectors and sinners. He's a terrible person. He mixes with all these undesirables. And uh, this was a, an insult that was hurled at him, particularly when he went to a banquet given by um, a tax collector called Levi, the son of Alphaeus. And this very same Levi, the tax collector, later went on to become the disciple Matthew, who is the gospel writer. So I think the fact that Jesus ate with tax collectors, sinners, sinners of all kinds, became his disciples. Uh, and I think that just to say that because somebody is a sinner, therefore they're a prostitute, is obviously ridiculous. But Jesus' response is, I have not come to call the righteous, I've come to call the sinners. And it's interesting that that taunt of eating with tax collectors and sinners, Jesus, in the, in the, gospel, in the episode that we just read in Luke 7, verse 36, immediately before that, Jesus quotes that taunt in Luke 7, verse 34, he says, the son of man came eating and drinking, and you say, here is a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. But in the next verse, we have another woman described as a sinner, coming to the dinner. So just after Jesus says, that's the very people that he's come to see, then a woman comes in and she washes, she stands behind him, she starts crying, her tears fall on his feet. She washes away the tears with her hair and she pours this incredible scented ointment on his feet. She anoints his feet with her, hair, with her perfume and she wipes it with her hair. And there is absolutely nothing in the Bible passage to say that she's a prostitute. She's just a sinful woman, just like me and just like some of us here who are also sinful women. So who was she? Was she Mary? If she was Mary, what was her sin? Why was she described like this? Well, I wonder whether there's a clue in, the, in John's Gospel where the, the account of Mary doing the similar thing to Jesus is in John chapter 12. But just before that, in John chapter 11, is the account of Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. And uh, John chapter 11 verse 1 says, Now a man named Lazarus was sick. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. This Mary, whose brother Lazarus now lay sick, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. That's John 11 verse 2. So what happened was Jesus arrived in, in Bethany and found that because he'd heard that Lazarus had died. He got there a few days later, and the first thing that happens is Martha comes running down the road to meet Jesus, and she says, she says, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. She's really angry, she's really upset that he's been hanging around and not coming when she, he knew that Lazarus was ill. But then she says, but I know that even now, God will give you whatever you ask. So although she's angry that Jesus has let her brother die, she still has faith that Jesus can do something about him. And then Jesus says to her, your brother will rise again. And she says, oh yes, I know that he'll rise again on the last day. But Jesus says, 
I'm the resurrection and the life. Whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? And Mary's, Martha, Martha says, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Messiah, the anointed one, the son of God who is to come into the world. And then they go back to the house. Well, they go towards the house. And then Mary comes out. She's missed all this conversation. Mary comes running out as well. And she says, oh, Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. So they've obviously been talking about it. And they thought that, you know, it's all Jesus' fault, really. So then Jesus, there's no declaration of faith there. She's just angry and she's bitter and she's upset, obviously. And when Jesus saw her weeping, this is verse 33, uh, and he says, where have you laid the body? And they say, come and see. But it, when Jesus saw her weeping, then it says, Jesus wept. Now, the way that those verses are put so close together, I wonder whether Jesus was weeping not so much because his friend Lazarus had died, but was he weeping because Mary, who was sitting there, standing there in front of him, saying, if you'd been here, my brother wouldn't have died. She could not see that he was the Messiah who had the gift of life and death, just like his, her sister had seen that. And Mary, who'd been sitting at Jesus' feet, listening to him not long before, here she is now, accusing him and missing the point along with all the other Jews who were there. And I wonder if that's what Jesus was weeping about, their lack of faith. And then later on, in the, I wonder how Mary felt when she realized her mistake, when she realized that she'd missed the point, when she realized that Jesus was the Messiah. Jesus was the one who came to, to rescue Israel. Jesus was the, the one who had come to bring life to the world. And when it dawned on her, I wonder how she felt. I wonder whether she felt ashamed at that anger that she'd expressed to Jesus just before. Because all of us are sinners, aren't we? When she, realized, when she did that, when she realized how bad she'd been, I wonder if she was overcome with a sense of her own inadequacy. I mean, all the best of us sin. It says in the Bible, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And in my experience, the people who are most concerned about their own sin are the people who are most concerned to do good, where the people who don't care about whether they do good or not, and they're quite happy to do bad things, they're not in the least bit bothered about their own sin. They don't think that they're sinful people. But it's people who want to do better, who want to please God. It's those people who are very aware of their own sin. And of course, that's the first step to faith, isn't it? Is acknowledging that. Is acknowledging that that sin that we have in our hearts ruins, can ruin our life. It ruins our relationships, whether we're prostitutes or not. And it shows that there's a desperate need for forgiveness. I wonder if you can remember when you first came to faith, whether you had that awareness of sin. I know for some people, it's a key, to, a key moment for them. What was your response when you first became aware of your own sin? And of course, the biggest sin is unbelief. Not believing in Jesus. Not believing in Jesus' power to give us life. His power to forgive. And that's what Mary did. 
she saw Jesus, she knew him, she knew he was a teacher, she'd listened to him, she loved him. And she didn't recognise that he was the Messiah. And I wonder whether she felt mortified by that. So mortified that it made her want to do something special to show her love in the future when she had the opportunity. It's interesting, in the Bible there's a few mentions of foot washing, not all that many, but there are a few, especially in the Old Testament. And um, the, one of the main, they, they seem to occur at significant moments. One is uh, Abraham and the three visitors. This is in Genesis chapter 18. And the Lord appeared to Abraham and it says, that, it says the Lord appeared to Abraham in the form of three men. And Abraham recognised that these three men were God. So he worshipped them, but he also welcomed them into his house. And he said, let a little water be brought, and then you may all wash your feet and rest. So the water came, and they washed, uh, Abraham washed their feet. And, this was the, and it was immediately after that that the three men said to Abraham that Sarah is going to have a baby. I will surely return to you about this time next year and Sarah, your wife, will have a son, it says in verse 10. So this was the prediction of the beginning of the fulfilment of the covenant. So before that, Abraham had received a promise from God that he would be the father of many nations and have descendants more than the stars. And then this happens and you... Sarah is about to become pregnant and he washes the feet of what it seems is God and as a result the covenant is about to start being fulfilled. So he welcomes them into his house and they have a meal together and then there's the covenant. So as a welcome, there's foot washing, there's a meal, there's a covenant. So I think that's an interesting sequence of events which is uh, a little bit familiar from another time in the New Testament with a different foot episode of foot washing which we're perhaps a bit more familiar with. When Jesus washes his disciples' feet, they're having a meal together, there's a welcome to the table and feet are washed and a covenant is begun. So when Jesus washes his disciples' feet, it, it signals that the new covenant is about to start being fulfilled. And that new covenant, as we know, is about bringing people into God's kingdom. It's about welcome. It's about acceptance. It's about coming home. It's about love. And in fact, it's so much about love that one of the Gospels, when it talks about Jesus washing the disciples' feet, it says, and then Jesus showed them the full extent of his love. And he did that by washing their feet to show them that by washing their feet he was cleansing them from their sins through his death. That's the extent of his love. So foot washing, acceptance, love, forgiveness, covenant, they all go together. And then when we see this uh, episode where the the, so the cleansing and the forgiving of sins is the aspect of foot washing that is emphasised in the, the story that we heard from the reading where the woman pours the 
the perfume and she wets her tears all over Jesus' feet, tears and perfume falling over his feet, and Jesus says, your sins are forgiven. And it's that aspect of the covenant and the foot washing that is emphasised as she anoints his, her Messiah. So who has the power to forgive sins? This was shock horror, a bit of a scandal that Jesus was saying, your sins are forgiven. Only God has the power to forgive sins. And of course, that's the point. She was acknowledging that he was God. He was forgiving her as her God. And this um, account that Luke gives us in the reading is straight after John the Baptist has sent messengers to ask Jesus if he's the Messiah. So John is in prison, starting to worry about whether everything's gone pear-shaped and all his prophecies were actually a bit wrong. But uh, actually, Jesus reassures him. So it says um, in the same chapter as our reading, John the Baptist sent messengers to ask, are you the one who is to come or should we expect someone else? Jesus says, go back and report to John what you've seen and heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. And then later on in the same chapter, Jesus' feet are anointed with perfumed oil and tears. And the Messiah is the anointed one, and this is the anointing. And that's why what she did was prophetic. Yes, he's anointed. Yes, he's the Messiah. And he's bringing in a new phase of the covenant. And he's forgiving sins. Isn't that fantastic? And in John's account, the, uh, the anointing of the feet with oil by, this, by Mary is immediately before the triumphal entry. So it's another covenantal act. So it's, again, it's very, very closely associated with the next stage of the covenant about to begin. And Mary knows that. Mary knows that he's Jesus now. She knows he's the Messiah. And she's anointing him and she's worshipping him for that. This is his new kingdom. It's all about acceptance, welcome and love. Because, of course, forgiveness is a transforming power in anybody's life. And I would say it's Christianity's unique selling point. Lots of other religions have all sorts of ways of getting rid of sin and guilt, but I think forgiveness is unique to Christianity, the freely available forgiveness that we have. And I think that we, we know that power and that freedom in our life, and we should celebrate that. And we are to pass it on, of course we are, as it says in the Lord's Prayer. And then Jesus gives, gives this little parable, only a couple of line, couple of verses. Two people owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he forgave the debts of both. Which of them will love him more? So verse 47 says that this woman that's anointing Jesus' feet, her many sins have been forgiven, as her great love has shown She's so aware of all the ways that she's fallen short. And in a way, she reminds me of the tax collector that was beating his breast in the dark corner of the synagogue, saying, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. He's a tax collector. She's a sinner. These are the people that Jesus came to save. And then Jesus says to both of them, of course, your sins are forgiven. 
Jesus, only God has the power to forgive sins, but we must pass it on. And that means not, not harbouring any grudges, not bearing a grudge against people, not rehearsing in our minds the way that we've been wronged, not thinking about every time we see somebody, oh, that's the person that said so-and-so to me. It means forgiveness doesn't get rid of the pain and it doesn't necessarily bring reconciliation. But it's an important step in both of those things. And I'm just going to tell a story now that I read about somebody called Devon Mulvaney. And he was in a car crash in 2015. He was driving home from church in Connecticut and, uh, and there was this terrible car crash where he, he was in a car with his parents and his sister and his parents and his sister were both killed and the person who was driving the car that caused the crash, his little daughter, Leona, who was two years old, she was killed as well. And it turned out that the driver of the other car, his name was Nerim, and he was driving under the influence of drugs. And that's one of the things that caused the crash. And two years later, uh, Devon Mulvaney had to give a witness statement in the trial of Nerim. And he talked about the last two years, how he'd been coming to terms with what had, what had happened and the loss of his parents and the, having to deal with their estates for his, three people, his sister and his parents, and all the trauma and the pain of that. But he knew that he couldn't just blame everything on Nerin. It wasn't all Nerin's fault. As he puts it, a lot went wrong that day. And Nerin and himself were just two people caught in a storm. And when they put flowers at the, the site of the crash, where the crash had happened, people put tributes. And they put a cross, not only to the family, his family not only put a cross to their own relations, but they also put a cross to little Leona, saying that she died too. And uh, this is what happened when Nerim visited that, saw that. It says, after a couple of months, Nerim visited the site of the crash and found that my uncle had made a cross for his daughter Leona, along with crosses for my parents and Catherine. That opened his heart for the first time. Nerim said he knew the cross had to have been placed there by our family, and that changed his life. He became a part of his community, he went to church, and he found God. He's been clean from drugs, and he's tried to become the father that he wished he was to Leona, to his other children. And that experience of being forgiven, of hearing the pain, of knowing the pain that you've caused, knowing that you can't do anything to undo it, but also knowing that the other person bears no malice towards you, only wants good for the rest of your life, that they have a reconciliation, in that case they did have a reconciliation, and the incredible freedom that that brings to enable somebody to have a new life. And that's what happens when you see somebody as a whole person, not just as a stereotype. Because he could so easily have said, oh yes, Nerim was a druggie, or oh yes, he was a bad driver, it was all his fault, he was the, vi he, he was the bad guy in all this. And, but he didn't, he didn't see him as a stereotype, he saw him as a whole person with his own grief and his own problems, and that's what enabled him to forgive him. So that was... When we forgive people, 
That's one way in which we are acting in the image of God. But in the passage that Elizabeth read from the Bible, there is also another person, which is Simon the Pharisee. And Simon the Pharisee was uh, not very sympathetic towards this woman doing the, the crying and the foot washing. And um, I just want us to look at a couple of ways in which we have to be really careful not to be like him. One of the things that Simon the Pharisee seemed to be was he, he felt okay. He wasn't aware of his own sin. He, he didn't see that his, anything that he did was wrong, or if it was, it didn't matter, it wasn't important. It, he didn't see the effect of it on his own life. And so because of that, he saw no need to be forgiven by Jesus. So there's two dangers here. One is that as Christians, we know that we're forgiven, and that is fantastic. But we have to be really careful not to be complacent in our forgiveness. We have to always remember that it comes at a cost, and that cost was, was paid by Jesus. We have to re remember that our sin has a big effect, and that the forgiveness, we mustn't be complacent about it. But also, we mustn't start to think that we don't need to be forgiven. I think that some people, particularly people who don't understand the importance of forgiveness and, and Jesus' uh, gift to us, they say, well, well I'm a good person. I, I haven't done anything. I haven't murdered anybody. I, I don't really steal. Um, I, I'm okay. I, why do I need Jesus to save me? And I think possibly that's how Simon the Pharisee was feeling. Well, you know, I do all my tithing and my, I obey my pharisaical laws. I'm, I'm okay. But that's a really dangerous position because it's belief in Jesus that gives us life. And without that, we, we are heading for not only a sort of start to die now, but a permanent death in the future. So it's really dangerous to feel that you don't need Jesus. And we have to be careful not to dismiss Jesus. If the Simon the Pharisee says, oh, well, if Jesus was a prophet, he would know that this is a bad person that's touching him. And I think sometimes people say nowadays, well, if God was real, if God was really powerful, he wouldn't allow all this suffering in the world. If God was real, if God was truly who he says he is, there wouldn't be um, X, Y, Z. You know, there wouldn't be wars, there wouldn't be suffering, there wouldn't be children dying. And I think that that's also a very dangerous position if we start to dismiss Jesus. Simon the Pharisee was judgmental of the people that Jesus had saved. And we know that Jesus saves all sorts of people. He saves sinners, tax collectors, anybody. And if we start to be judgmental about whether some people are worthy of it, that's also a very dangerous position. And we can become like this if we start to put people in boxes, if we use stereotypes and our culture still does this. Our culture still puts women into categories like, oh, so-and-so is a good girl, so-and-so is a slut, so-and-so, women who speak out, they're brazen hussies, they're shrill, they shouldn't do that, they should be demure, this kind of Mary Eve sort of dichotomy. And I think we have to be really careful that we don't go along with that. And, but there are lots of other labels that don't just apply to women, they apply to men as well. 
like, oh, he's a Brexiteer, he's a Remainer, he's a person with mental health problems. They can reduce a person to a single quality. And when you do that, it enables you to dismiss people. And it enables us to judge people. And when we give people a label like that and we stereotype them, that enables us to ignore them and to ignore what they're saying. And I think that it's, there's a very, that, that as a church, we, I mean, that's a danger, something we have to uh, avoid as individuals, but also as a church, we have to be really careful that as a church, we don't become anything like that. And uh, so what's the answer? The answer is to mix with each other, to understand each other, to see what's behind what, the, whatever is appear, apparent on the surface. Because we need to accept each other, because we're all sinners, of one sort or another. And when we remember that we're all sinners and we acknowledge the value of our, our forgiveness, then we can pass it on. And when we pass on the forgiveness that we receive, then we're proclaiming the covenant, we're spreading the kingdom, and we're spreading the Messiah, our Messiah, throughout the world because we love so much because we've been forgiven so much and when we do that it's prophetic like the woman with the jar of ointment was prophetic so we can't box people into pigeonholes saint sinner because we're all both we're all sinners but with jesus's amazing forgiveness we're all saints as well and we're all in one box there's one box and that box is those who are made in the image of God. So let's celebrate that. <laughs>